Early this year, World Magazine published an update on the life of Elizabeth Elliot, widely respected for her ministry and commitment to global missions. Elizabeth will turn 88 next Sunday. She is perhaps best known for being the wife of Jim Elliot, a missionary who was martyred in eastern Ecuador in January of 1956. Elizabeth then spent seven years as a missionary to Ecuador, serving the same people who killed her husband. She returned to the States to launch an impressive writing and speaking ministry and remarried in 1969. But her second husband died of cancer just four years later. In 1977, she remarried again to Lars Grin. Early this year, reporter Tiffany Owens traveled to Massachusetts to meet Elizabeth and Lars for an update. She recounted the encounter in World Magazine. She wrote this, quote, Lars Grin led me down a dim hallway to a special room lit magnificently, floor to ceiling with windows that looked out over the Atlantic Ocean. A slim, elderly woman dressed in black pants and a floral shirt, her hair swirled in a bun, sat next to the fireplace. We have company today, Grin said, bending down to touch her hand. His wife, Elizabeth Elliot, nodded but did not reply. Since the onset of dementia about a decade ago, the best-selling and widely known Christian author communicates mostly through slight hand gestures and facial expressions. For everything else, there's Lars Grin, her husband of 36 years. He and two caregivers attend to her daily needs. Elliot stopped giving speeches in 2004 as her health worsened. Grin says Elliot has handled dementia just as she did the deaths of her husband's. She accepted those things, knowing they were no surprise to God, Grin said. It was something she would rather not have experienced, but she received it. Hearing these words, Elliot looked up and nodded, her eyes clear and strong. Then she spoke for the first time during the two-hour interview, nodding vigorously, yes. End quote. If Elizabeth Elliot has taught us a lesson, it's that missions and ministry are best done in the shadow of suffering, not in the absence of suffering. But it's that vigorous nod of faith that intrigues me here. All the deterioration of her brain over the last decade has not snuffed out her faith. Why? Why is it in the moment in which she can testify of God's goodness, her eyes suddenly get clear and she finds new strength to speak? In other words, how does faith survive dementia? Today on the Authors on the Line podcast, we talk with Dr. Benjamin Mast. Dr. Mast is a licensed clinical psychologist and an associate professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Louisville. He is also an elder at Sojourn Community Church. He recently put his experience and expertise together in a new book titled Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of the Gospel in Alzheimer's Disease published by Zondervan. And his book is needed. Projected statistics for Alzheimer's in America over the next several decades is staggering, growing from about 5 million victims today to a projected 13.5 million by 2050, a rate of increase due mostly to growing life expectancy. And with this rise brings with it ballooning healthcare costs and questions about caregiving and quality of life. Today on the Authors on the Line podcast, I ask Dr. Mast about what Alzheimer's does to the brain, what it does to personal faith, what we can do to prepare for it, and what spiritual disciplines are more apt to survive this degenerative disease. And I began by asking Dr. Mast to explain how this mysterious disease destroys the brain. Alzheimer's disease is a progressive neurological condition. 
and what that means basically is it is a brain disease uh, that starts in a particularly small region of the brain and then spreads throughout. The progressive nature means that it continues to get worse and as the science stands there's currently nothing that can modify that course or stop that disease process. It's characterized by very tiny microscopic changes in the brain, so small that they can't be seen on a, a standard brain scan. What's interesting and difficult about Alzheimer's disease is it starts in a particular region of the brain, which we call the temporal lobes, which are responsible for aspects of our memory. And from there, it spreads to other regions that we'll probably end up talking about today, uh, other aspects of the brain, the parietal and frontal lobes. And as it does, it continues to take more and more of the person's ability, uh, their memory, their ability to navigate their environment. And in some sense, it even seems to uh, rob aspects of our personhood, of who we are. And so it's a very devastating disease for many people. There's great fear surrounding it. And the other difficulty is it's just growing in its prevalence in our society today. It's estimated there are about 5 million people in the United States with Alzheimer's disease now, and by 2030, that's expected to at least triple. Uh, so it's a growing problem, and it's one that uh, we're really needing to tackle. Yeah, that is staggering. Staggering statistics. Um, is there any sense of what it's like to live with Alzheimer's? Uh, is there a common feeling among those who are affected with this? Yeah, so one of the things that we say about Alzheimer's disease and the people who live with it is if you've met one person with Alzheimer's disease, you've really just met one person. What I mean by that is uh, there's a lot of uh, variability, very diverse experiences that people have. You'll meet one person and they seem very content where other person feels incredibly tortured uh, by what's going on. Some of the common things that I hear people talk about are a sense of loneliness. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of fear, as I mentioned before. And then there's just a, a confusion and disorientation. So the way that uh, memory is initially affected in Alzheimer's disease is memory for recent and new information. So the things that we talk about now in this conversation today fall in that category. So for anybody to remember what we're talking about right now, they have to convert this into a long-term memory. It has to be stored. And people with Alzheimer's disease have great difficulty with that. So in a sense, when they're walking around and navigating their daily routine, there's much of the things that they're experiencing in the moment that are quickly forgotten. And so there's a sense in which uh, if we talk about what people experience, imagine that you couldn't remember what happened earlier in the day or what happened yesterday or what appointment people keep trying to talk to you about. And the sense of confusion uh, must be very great. But one of the issues that we deal with in trying to understand what people feel and experience in Alzheimer's disease is there is a level of unknowability. That is, we can know certain things about what they experience and we can talk with people, but there is a limit to what we can fully understand about what it's like to live with Alzheimer's disease. And I think we don't fully know until we experience it ourselves. And unfortunately, once we experience it ourselves, our ability to communicate that experience is greatly diminished. So it leaves us with a difficult situation of trying to love people and understand them uh, and love them well by understanding them. But there are certain limits on what we'll be able to access in terms of their internal experience. Hmm. Interesting to me is that you're not only a psychologist, you're also an elder. 
And uh, in your book, you you bring a valuable pastoral dimension to this topic. And maybe my biggest question for you is that, you know, among faithful Christians, how does Alzheimer's affect the spiritual life? How does it, it challenge or change or even erode personal faith in Christ? Yeah, it's a question that I get quite a bit too, both as an elder and as a psychologist. Uh, that is, if a person has been a faithful Christian all their life and now has Alzheimer's disease, what does that mean for them in terms of their faith walk and remembering the Lord? And again, I, I go back to what I said for the prior question that uh, the experiences of people are quite different here. So some people you see that they continue to obviously cling to faith, uh, engage in the practices of their faith. Uh, one man uh, who I met was a retired pastor and he had Alzheimer's disease, and he continued to do hospital visits with his son. His son would take him to the hospital, and this man with Alzheimer's disease would pray over other people who were sick. He would offer words of encouragement, and he was clearly still walking the life of faith he had walked for a long time. Another woman who I was actually testing to determine whether she had Alzheimer's disease or not uh, she quit testing. So I was giving her various memory tests and she quit and said she had had enough. And she said to me, my memory is just fine for what I need to do. And I asked her a little bit more about that and what her routine was. She lived in a uh, nursing home retirement community. She would get up each day and walk to the chapel and she would sit down and she would pray uh, her prayers and she would read through scripture and then she would walk back to her room and in a sense, what she was telling me is, I remember enough to know that I want to do that each day. She remembered the Lord, even if sometimes walking back to her room, she got confused. But other people have a different experience. It seems that uh, the walk of faith becomes much more difficult for them. Uh, it's harder for them, and they seem less inclined toward it. And it, it raises an issue of remembering and faith and how those two things go together. Uh, when we talk about faith in the Lord, are we talking about remembering him? Are we talking about remembering what he's done in our lives personally and what he's done generally through his son Jesus? Is it partly remembering he's present with us and remembering what he's promised for us in the future? And so in a sense, even for these people who it appears that maybe their faith is weaker or is less salient in their life, are there ways that we can minister them and draw them back into remembering the Lord in these ways, despite the presence of a severe problem with forgetting. And the local church plays an important role here. I want to come back to that in just a moment. But given that every experience is different, uh, are, are there any common investments that Christians can make now in, say, uh, the spiritual disciplines, in Bible memorization, in routines like church attendance, and like in hymn singing, uh, that will prepare us to face Alzheimer's with tools and habits that will help us to spiritually thrive through the disease. Yeah, so this is something that became very personal for me as I was writing this book. Uh, I, I spent time talking with families and people who were affected, and I became so impressed with the way that people would cling to their faith despite this very, very difficult time. And you would see these people engaging in uh, these acts of faith, these religious practices that have promoted their ability to walk with the Lord, even though things seem to be slipping away around them. And I thought, you know, if this were me one day to develop Alzheimer's disease, I would want to look like that. And I would want to uh, have these practices in my life that I could hold on to. Um, but then I thought, 
but I'm not going to have those things if I have Alzheimer's disease if I don't have them now. And so it, it, it encouraged me to be thinking about what rhythms of faith do I have in my life right now? What spiritual disciplines are regular enough for me that they'll stick with me even when I'm deep into forgetting? And so the things that we see in talking with people, the things that seem to stay through, uh, tend to draw both on what I would call spiritual disciplines, but also what we would call in the research world of Alzheimer's disease, procedural and emotional memories. So I said earlier that people have a significant problem with forgetting, and that's the forgetting of new information, recent information. But there are aspects of our memory that are so well-worn, it's as if they're habits, and that is what we call our procedural memory. So it's not uncommon to see somebody, even in a locked memory care unit of a nursing home, seem as if they are completely unaware of what's going on. But when they hear an old hymn that they know and love, that they light up and they sing every word of it, and it's just a beautiful picture of how they have this hymn, this truth embedded deep within them that they can access uh, when they're prompted to do so. So the, what I think about in terms of these disciplines, one has to do with uh, what rhythms do we have in our life in terms of the basics of spiritual discipline? So reading scripture, prayer, songs, hymns, but also what do we have in our life in terms of our relationships? So I think it's important to establish these spiritual disciplines as it is for any Christian, but it's also important to let the significant people in our lives know that these are the patterns of our days so that if we were to slip into Alzheimer's disease, not only would those habits be formed, but we would have people who were aware of what our habits are and could redirect us back to those so that we can continue to engage in them. Very good. Thank you for that. Uh, here's a question related to a specific case. Uh, in, a, in a local church here in Minneapolis, there was a wonderful old couple in the church. The wife lived to be over 100 years old, but the husband, when he was hospitalized after a stroke, suffered some changes in his brain, and the result was that this very kind and gentle and loving man became quite vile uh, from then on. He even began using profanity, four-letter words to his own wife, and she was, she was devastated by this. Uh, this was not like him at all. With your pastor hat on, um, how should we think about significant personality changes in terms of the perseverance of faith and assurance um, if dementia causes what looks like to be an unbelieving lifestyle at the end of one's life? Yeah, this is a great question, a very common question, actually. Different, different details, but the same kind of question. What I think is these are things that we need to wrestle through uh, as the church body, as people who seek to love others well. But three things come to mind for me with a question like this and a situation like this. We need to think about what's happening theologically, obviously, uh, but we also need to think about what's happening neurologically, what's happening in the brain to help us understand why this man of faith looks so different now. And I think the third thing we think about is um, not just how we should think about it, but how can we step in to minister uh, to this particular uh, family and, that, and the individual who has this new uh, particular pattern in his behavior. So I think it's helpful to start with what's happening neurologically. So this is a man, obviously I haven't met him, but who's had a stroke and some significant changes in his brain and then experiences a fairly dramatic personality change where he moves from gentle and kind to, I think the word was vile and profane. When we see this type of a personality change in the context of neurological damage, 
it's often the result of significant damage to regions of the brain surrounding the frontal lobes. So the frontal lobes are involved in a variety of functions that make us function well. Uh, but one of the things that those are involved in is in terms of inhibiting uh, what you might call inappropriate or uh, socially unacceptable behavior. Uh, you might even call it sinful behavior. So what this region does is essentially gives us a filter that keeps us from the impulses and thoughts that we have that would hurt other people, uh, but that continue to dwell within us. So what I think about in this, what comes to mind is the linkage between Romans 7 and Romans 8. So Romans 7 tells us that even when we want to do good, sin is right there with us and uh, describes this real battle between the life of the spirit and the life of the flesh and how uh, that sin is with us and we're battling it and we're fighting it off. And what we see in a gentleman like this is that battle is very real, but that damage to his frontal lobes and to the parts of the brain that work in concert with the frontal lobes that help him fight that battle have been significantly damaged. So in a sense, the tables have been tipped against him. It becomes much more difficult to inhibit uh, a sinful impulse to speak harshly to his wife. It's analogous, but not the same as uh, maybe when you come home from work and you haven't eaten, you've had a bad day, you're very tired and something goes wrong and this anger erupts out of you. And you think, where did that come from? Well, you knew that sin was right there with you all the time, but under that situation where you weren't at your best, where you didn't have good rest, you hadn't eaten, you were hungry and you were frustrated, it just came out. And it doesn't change the fact that it's not good, that it's wrong, that it hurts other people. Uh, but in that moment, your ability to inhibit it was decreased. It doesn't mean you're not responsible for your behavior. I'm not trying to explain that away. Uh, but that's just a simple example where something comes out of us uh, that we normally wouldn't have uh, said or done if we were well-rested, well-fed, and at peace. So for this man, it's as if he has that, but it's much, much heavier and much more persistent. And so his ability to uh, inhibit and hold back his frustration and anger is greatly decreased. And in that sense, uh, it doesn't make it much easier, easier, but there's a sense in which we need to have mercy uh, for a person like this and understand that he's carrying a very heavy neurological weight. Another aspect of this type of behavior can be uh, living with these uh, cognitive and mental changes can be incredibly frustrating. And for people like this, they may have difficulty understanding what other people are doing. And so they get confused and they may lash out because they don't know any other way to communicate their frustration. And in a sense, it the decreased ability to communicate appropriately uh, makes them lash out and behave in a way that is very hurtful to other people. But the question that was started, what does this mean for this person's faith? What does it mean theologically? Uh, has their fundamental faith changed? Uh, has their nature changed? You know, I think we come back to the linkage between Romans 7 and 8, where we say sin is right there with us. We all have this internal battle or war against sin, the flesh and the spirit. And so when we think about this man theologically, we have to come back to, do we believe what Romans 8 says? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit 
continues to intercede on his behalf, even when he doesn't know how to pray? Do we believe that Christ is interceding on his behalf? And do we believe uh, that nothing in all of creation, not even neurological damage, not even Alzheimer's disease, can separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? And do we believe that God will continue the good work that he has started in him? In a sense, do we believe that it's God's grace that sustains our faith as opposed to our appropriate behavior? So the third aspect uh, that I think about with this particular man, we've thought about uh, the neurological and the theological aspects, but, but the third piece is what does this mean for us as a church family in trying to minister to this particular man? You know, what we know from uh, the description uh, that you read a minute ago was that he has this new problem uh, with uh, being harsh and profane with his wife, but we don't know much else about his particular experience. So we see uh, this pattern uh, in him that's very troubling, but we don't know uh, what happens in the moments where we're away from him. And we don't know much uh, about what he experiences and what his heart is. You know, we've talked about uh, theologically our trust that the Lord hangs on to him and has ways of reaching him. But I think the bigger challenge for the church is, is not just how do we think about this, but how do we step in to minister to him? And this is one thing that I think that we can grow in as the church in terms of better understanding the challenges of things like dementia and these behavior problems and how we can bring our ministry practices to help him. So in a sense, we don't want to forget to bring this man before God uh, in prayer, lifting him up. But we also don't want to forget to bring God before this man in reaching him, uh, again, drawing on uh, the procedural memory systems, the spared aspects of memory uh, to share the word with him, to read Bible passages with him, spend time with him. Uh, if he is somebody who likes to sing, uh, to encourage him to sing with us, especially songs that he knew as he was growing in faith. Uh, we should seek to approach him <clears throat> as a full person, uh, a full member of our church body, as an important part of the body of Christ, where we don't forget him and cut him off because of the behavior that he's exhibiting, but that we treat him as one of us uh, who needs God and who needs ministry, just like we all do. I mean, he needs it no more than I do or you do. Uh, but sometimes when we have these uh, neurologically driven behavior issues, we take a step back and we don't do anything because we don't know what to do. But we should seek to pray to the Spirit to guide us how we can step in and, and think about some of these basic disciplines and just find ways to show love to Him. And the, the last piece that I would add to that is sometimes when we do those things, people feel like, I tried that and it didn't really work. And that isn't necessarily the point, in my opinion. We're called to be faithful, to step into this man's life. We shouldn't go in to read scripture with him with the assumption that this is going to necessarily get him to stop doing this. We don't want to think about it like this is some pill that we will give him and then he will stop behaving in this way. You know, we're ministering the context of, like I said, a very heavy neurological weight that's resting upon this man. And we should step in with mercy and grace, but with love. And uh, he is among us, and he needs the word, and he needs prayer, and he needs community as much as we do. 
that's outstanding counsel for the church, and that that's really great comfort of God's sovereignty over us. I want to come back to the theology question at the end. I've got one more question there, but back to the cases that you've seen. In your experience, does Alzheimer's typically make people kind who were more easily angered, or the other way around, does it make people more easily angered who were previously kind? Is there is there a common pattern at all? Yeah, and, and what's really interesting about this is the most common pattern is neither of those. So the most common pattern uh, is that people have a lot of continuity in terms of their personality, but whatever personality quirks they have are often intensified. So the man who was uh, easily angered becomes more so in most situations, and the person who is fairly passive becomes even more so, and that's what the research data suggests. But what is true is that there are people for whom the change is very dramatic. So they were very um, kind and loving, and then they become aggressive. And maybe somebody else lives with somebody who is aggressive, even abusive, and they become very kind and dementia. And the reason why I think this question comes up so often is when that dramatic personality change happens, it's so noticeable and so memorable uh, that it seems like the common pattern, but it's actually the exception. And part of what it depends upon is, as I started with today, uh, where does that pathology or brain damage initially occur and how far does it spread? So when it hits areas like the frontal lobes that are really key for uh, appropriate behavior and personality, that's when you start to see things shift. Uh, but many people uh, have a continuation of their ways of being and their personality. Interesting. Uh, I want you to talk to caregivers for a moment and those who minister to sufferers of this disease. There, there are incessant questions. Uh, I've heard of one elderly man with dementia who asked the same question 10 times in 10 minutes. There are repetitive questions posed, and, and this poses a question for caregivers. Um, what does it look like in this type of situation? Does, does Christian love require that we answer the question 10 times, even if it's the same question 10 times? Or can we answer it once and then ignore the question from then on? Or is there a way to redirect their attention? What would you say to caregivers in this situation? This is one of those areas that really is a challenge for families and for friends of people with Alzheimer's disease. The the repetitive question is one of the more common uh, behavioral issues that people deal with because it's very, uh, it really stands out. It's your question was, you know, 10 times in 10 minutes, which is, which is pretty frequent. Uh, but again, you hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, identifying this as a short-term memory problem. The person simply doesn't realize that they asked the question already. And it gives you a little lens or a window into how quickly they can forget. Uh, if they can ask it uh, twice in two minutes, it means they're really uh, forgetting very quickly. And so the question is, how do you respond to it? What is a loving and honoring approach to somebody asking the same question over and over? Because as much as we like repetition and poetry and song, uh, we really don't like it uh, very much when it comes to asking the same question about an appointment uh, or about where a loved one who has long since deceased is. Uh, that's when the rubber hits the road when they ask, uh, where is my husband? And you know that he died five years ago. Uh, so what does it mean to love? And what comes to mind for me is what does love look like? First uh, Corinthians 13, when we think about the qualities of love, three things that stand out, they're patient, 
kind and love does not dishonor. And the reality is if they could stop asking this question, they would. And so you have the choice. Uh, I can either continue to answer it uh, or I can try another approach. And what I would encourage people to think about is the most loving and honoring response is the one that addresses the underlying need that prompts the behavior. And so sometimes the question is fairly benign, asking about the location of some object or what we're going to do next. And those are questions that just essentially are asking, uh, what are we doing? What's happening here? You know, you want to take a, as well as you can, keeping in mind that there's a level of unknowability. You want to try to understand what's driving this question. And so if it's simple question about what are we doing next, what's happening, uh, you know, my approach has been to answer once or twice. Sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. But it, it is a loving and honoring thing uh, to redirect the person uh, in specific ways. So what you want to be able to do is answer the question. That's an honoring and loving response. You can be patient with repetition. You might need to pray for greater patience than you already have, uh, seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit in that. But then you can also seek to help them talk about something else. And it might even be they're asking you the same question over and over. And you say something as simple as, hey, I need some help over here with this. Can you come over here and help me? And what you're trying to do is to interrupt that uh, internal circular process of needing to have that particular question answered. The other part of it, if I could just add one more piece to it, is... Sometimes that question is uh, reflecting a more significant underlying need. And so when a person is asking about a loved one who's been lost, uh, the loving response isn't necessarily every time to tell them that the person has passed away. Because in a sense, you're reactivating the grief that they experienced initially. And to them, it may be new information because they may have completely forgotten. As hard to believe as that is, they may have forgotten that they actually passed away. So a different way of redirecting is not just ignoring the question by asking them to do something else or to come help you or talk about something else. What you can do in that situation is what some uh, dementia professionals will call a validation type approach. So you try to understand what is it that they're needing right now. Are they experiencing loneliness or are they feeling afraid or do they need companionship or do they just want to remember what that person was like? So in that case, you don't necessarily answer with, they're not here right now. I hate to tell you this, but they've passed away. I know it's hard. But ask them questions about the person that they're looking for. Tell me what he's like. Tell me some of your th favorite things about him. Or if you're not a close family member and you're taking care of somebody, you could ask, tell me what he looks like so that I can watch for him too. It seems like to some people that you're actually being dishonest and withholding the information. But what you're trying to do is to love them well and try to meet the underlying need that they have for companionship and to remember that person. So it isn't always an easy answer how you should respond, uh, but you should pray for guidance that your response would be loving. That's very helpful. Thank you for that. And uh, okay, put your your pastor hat back on one more time. You talked about Romans 8 earlier and uh, for Christians who are frightened at the prospect of Alzheimer's who have a family history of it, uh, what, what gospel comfort would you offer to them that's bigger than Alzheimer's disease? So one of my 
this isn't necessarily New Testament gospel, but one of my favorite passages uh, when we think about fear and uh, hope in the midst of fear actually comes from the stories, a story of the Israelites when they are about to go into the promised land. It comes from Deuteronomy 7. And God, obviously, you know, the story has brought them through quite a bit to get here. And he essentially, if I could paraphrase, says, you might look at these nations and say, they're much larger than us. We could never possibly defeat them. Uh, the picture is the Israelites are absolutely overwhelmed and they don't know what they could possibly do. And I think many people, as they face uh, the prospect of having Alzheimer's disease and seeing what goes along with it, they can feel like those Israelites felt that this is absolutely overwhelming. I don't know how I could ever defeat this enemy in front of me. What will I possibly do? And God's call to the Israelites there is to remember well all that I've done for you. He calls them to remember how he defeated Pharaoh, and he can certainly uh, address this new challenge in their life as well. And we see that in their story that God calls them, remember what I've done for you in the past. Remember how great I am and how awesome I am that I've been able to take you through so much. He calls us to remember that he'll be with us in the present, that he'll provide for our needs, that he'll be with us. And again, we get that Romans 8 comfort that the Spirit is interceding on our behalf and we can't be separated uh, from his love. There's nothing that can do that. And but also we need to remember his promise for our future that no matter what it might look like in Alzheimer's disease, we know uh, that this is not the end for us. That in a sense, some of the suffering of Alzheimer's disease is us groaning and longing and preparing for a much sweeter reality. God is with us in the past, in the present, and he'll be with us in the future, and it'll be much, much better and much greater than the suffering that will that we may experience in Alzheimer's disease. I think a key part of this, though, is that when you are somebody who uh, may be at somewhat higher risk because you had a family member uh, who had Alzheimer's disease, you do have a little bit higher risk, but you still have a much better chance of not getting Alzheimer's disease. And even if you do, uh, there's no guarantee that you're going to experience it the way that your loved one did. Uh, there are many people who continue to be quite content and live happy, meaningful lives despite the cognitive problems. It looks quite different, uh, but there's even grace in living with Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't have to be all uh, suffering. I think that's important for us to recognize there are many people with Alzheimer's disease who don't want to be described as suffering because they feel fine and they have significant problems, but they found a way to be content. I think that's just another evidence of God's grace in our lives. That was Dr. Benjamin Mast. And Dr. Mast is a licensed clinical psychologist and an associate professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Louisville. He is also an elder at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He recently put his experience and expertise together in a new book titled Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of the Gospel in Alzheimer's Disease published by Zondervan. For more details about what we covered in this conversation, be sure to check out his book. As with all the other episodes that have come before this one, this episode, number 37, is made possible because of the generous financial donors who support Desiring God, people like you. So thank you for supporting our work. As the year draws to a close, we would especially be grateful for your help in financially supporting our work. If you'd like to partner with us to support us and to support this podcast into the future, you can do that by going to DesiringGod.org. Click on the, the Donate tab at the top of the screen, 
and uh, know that your financial support is greatly appreciated by us. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. I'll see you next time in the new year when we talk with John Bolt about what Herman Bovink has to say to businessmen. That should be fun. Have a wonderful Christmas and a New Year's.